This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 10th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Radicals in 1830s New York took over the state's Democratic Party and implemented their own Declaration of Principles, rooted in the idea that government should respect the individual. The loco focos, as they came to be known, dramatically shifted the Democratic Party and, for a time, politics in the United States. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. We talked about the Loco Focos and their legacy today. In the 1830s, a group known as the Loco Focos, radical Democrats, took over the Democratic Party of New York. Uh, what were their grievances, and you know why? Why is it interesting to note this uh, this part of history? Uh, so in the mid-1830s, Jackson's bank war uh, at the national level had, for all intents and purposes, been won, uh, but meaning. meaning that the national bank was dead uh, and its charter defunct. Um, he'd won the political battle on whether to recharter the bank in the early part of the decade, and by the mid part of the decade, uh, more radical Jeffersonian Democrats at the state and local level wanted to expand the bank war to close the state banks as well, uh, which of course had no connection to the national government, but they were uh, run by political coalitions at the state level, uh, and many Democrats were hesitant to give up their power over these state banks. So uh, there was a division, especially in the New York local party uh, in the ranks of Tammany Hall, between conservative or so-called bank Democrats who favored state banking uh, and the so-called radical or uh, anti-bank Democrats uh, who wanted to continue the bank war at the state level as well, uh, and completely, as they said, divorce the connection between bank and state. So this set the stage for a uh, contest at the nominating convention in late 1835, where the radicals uh, made a secret conspiratorial plan to overtake the nominating convention. Uh, they flooded the convention with their numbers, uh, unbeknownst to Tammany, who had no idea the plan was underway. The conservatives were shocked at the number of people that turned out. They knew that they would lose the, the nominations. So uh, they shut the lights off in Tammany Hall and de declared the convention closed without nominations. Uh, the radicals had planned for this because they knew that dirty tricks would be in the offing. They each came with newly invented friction matches in their pockets. These were called loco focos uh, as a colloquialism. And the radicals went to the basement, they opened boxes of candles, and they lit their uh, convention with loco-foco matches and candles, and they made sort of rump nominations of radicals. Now, Tammany, of course, didn't accept this. The Democratic Party didn't accept these rump nominations. So the next day, the regular party presses denounced the radicals as loco-focos, a sort of uh, badge of their outsider status. Uh, and, of course, their reckless division of the party as well. Um, so is it fair to, when we talk about Tammany Hall, of course, that for a, a lot of people has some historical re relevance. Is it fair to think of Tammany Hall at this time as the Democratic Party machine? Yes, yeah, certainly in, in New York, uh, in New York State, it's Albany and it's Tammany Hall uh, in New York City that really controls state politics, at, at least for the Democratic Party. Now, of course, Tammany had no connection to the Whigs, so this is all speaking in terms of Democrats. 
Uh, but yes, it, it was the machine. And this is the other element that set off the Locofocos. They determined that they had to take over the party. They had to storm the convention. They had to do it secretly. Otherwise, the machinery of the party apparatus would inevitably block their activity. Uh, and there are very glowing descriptions of how everybody is trained by Tammany to do what they're told, and that's how the party works. Well, they'd had it in 1835. They saw that uh, the Democratic Party was kicking out radicals, expelling them from the party, reading them out of, of association for having no you know, room for compromise in their radical ideology. So they said, well, the only way to take over uh, uh, and influence the party long term is to literally take it over. This was about 60 years after the Declaration of Independence. This is not that far removed from uh, that event. And they outlined a series of what they referred to as their Declaration of Principles. When did they reveal the Declaration of Principles? Well, this would have been the following year uh, in 1836 at the, I believe this is from the uh, county convention, the first Equal Rights Party. That's what they called their organization. Uh, Their opponents called them Locofocos, which the radicals accepted as a sort of badge of honor, but they called their own organization the Equal Rights Party. Uh, and equal rights, both with capital letters, E and R, became watchwords for radical democracy or locofocoism in coming decades. So they've got this, uh, the first element of their uh, Declaration of Principles. They say, we therefore hold with the revered Jefferson that first, the true foundation of Republican government is the equal rights of every citizen in his person and property and in their management. Now, what did they mean by this and, and how was that view not being addressed at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what the Locofocos did, I think the thing that makes them special in the history of liberalism, in the United States at least, is that they took the principles of the revolution from people like Jefferson and especially Tom Paine, and they carried them all the way down. They carried them all the way through. Uh, so they didn't accept, for example, the curtailment of the rights of any individuals. And many of them went to the, at the time, extreme position of anti-slavery and full rights for African Americans, full rights, equal rights for women. Uh, They spoke about rights for, of course, foreigners, religious minorities. Um, and they, they carry those principles all the way down to, the, to every rung in the social, economic, political ladder. Uh, and they really took the principle of universalism uh, and made it a cornerstone, a foundation uh, of their thinking. All right. And their second element here, the rightful power of all legislation is to declare and enforce only our natural rights and duties and to take none of them from us. You can almost hear parts of the Declaration of Independence there, that is, the government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. Right, and has no powers apart from the just powers of the individual. So it's a lot like the law, uh, the the idea that the government can have no moral power, uh, which the, the sole individual or the lone individual does not also have. Uh, if you know you have the right to self-defense, so by proxy you can appoint the government to defend yourself, but they certainly uh, cannot take the power to loot others uh, since you cannot delegate that to them. So again, the, the, the locofocos take these ideas and apply them all the way down. Now, uh, for listeners uh, who 
partake of, of other Cato podcasts, we have six, believe it or not, you can uh, listen to the entire Declaration of Principles from uh, the Loco Focos on our other podcast, Classics of Liberty, which you can get to uh, via iTunes or wherever, whatever pod cla- podcast client you like to use. So down the road, the Loco Focos were uh, a movement of that moment, but how did it resonate through the years and, and what was their sort of uh, final tally in terms of wins and losses? Well, it's uh, a final tally is is nearly impossible to come up with, but uh, we can trace incredible influence by the loco foco movement. Now, what historians normally do is they say, "Oh well, after the third party in New York State fell apart in 1837, they really they rejoined the Democratic Party under Van Buren." Uh, Historians usually leave the story there, and they assume that loco focos disappeared. Uh, but so what I what I try to do is recover that movement uh, in decades after the original third party war with Tammany Hall. So loco focos went on to uh, they moved out of New York. There are ideas carried all across the North. Uh, they were involved in the Canadian rebellions of 1837 to 1839. Uh, they founded the Young America Movement, which was a nationalistic, romanticist uh, art, arts movement in literature and the visual arts. Um, they were responsible for revolutionizing corporation law at the state level, and the model they set in New York became the model for incorporation uh, in states across the union. Let, let's let's talk about that a little oh, bit. Oh, sure. What sure. Did, what what did a corporation look like uh, prior to the time that, that this changed in New York? Because I think it's, it's important to know that what we know as a corporation today is so much closer to what they wanted than what, how, it start, how the U.S. started. Yeah, corporations were originally granted specifically by state legislatures. So this is a holdover from the colonial period where the king would grant a charter to certain individuals, you know, uh, uh, literally giving them certain rights and privileges that had originally belonged to the king as his personal right. Uh, and as the state governments formed after the revolution, they assumed this right of charter granting for themselves uh, as part of their constitutions. And uh, if you wanted to establish a bridge, a ferry company, road company, what have you, you would have to petition the legislature specifically for uh, articles of incorporation to do that. What the Loco Focos did is they saw this as, as a hugely corrupting problem, grants of monopoly power essentially, uh, of course breaches of the state's legitimate authority because no individual has the right to grant other individuals special powers and privileges. Uh, so it's essentially an exclusionary grants of monopoly power. Uh, so what they decided to, to do to fix this was to democratize the institution of the corporation and to generalize it so that anyone who met a certain minimum number of requirements, like capital, for example, you have a certain amount of capital, have to have articles drawn up and so on, uh, you just go to the you know corporate office that the state might establish and fill out your forms and they rubber stamp it for you and you go ahead. You don't have to spe- specifically petition the legislature for special articles. So their, their push was, we view corporations as special gifts of monopoly from the state. Why wouldn't they then support just getting rid of that 
monopoly and allowing people to what, what were the benefits of democratization of that institution versus eliminating that special privilege? Well, the thinking for many was carte blanche, anti-corporation. Just like for many, they were completely anti-bank. They didn't want any to exist at all. Now, most of them were not quite that radical. Uh, they were more, if you will, sensible about this. And they saw that there were certain benefits to corporate organization. There are certainly, uh, apart from the special powers and privileges granted by legislatures, the, the fact that people could come together and pool their capital with a specified contract uh, is important. And uh, for some of them, they thought the principle of limited liability was a necessity for uh, business. Um, at least in the modern modern way, um, that you would have to provide means for individual shareholders to you know not be held liable for the the actions of the whole corporation. Uh, so they they supported uh, corporate organization and they wanted to be able to have any literally any citizen open to the benefits of starting a corporation uh, and minimize the number of special powers and privileges granted. So as long as everybody was essentially uh, uh, sub subject to the same rules and regulations and there were no grants of special uh, exclusive powers and privileges, they saw little to no problem with it. Although, as I, as I said, some, uh, again, took the ideas all the way down and they said, well, limited liability. Why should anyone be able to limit their liabilities if they uh, are part of a corporation, part owners of a, a, an entity that is out there damaging people or doing harm? They should be held liable at 100 percent. There seem to be some parallels here that, that we can draw. This was an insurgency within the Democratic Party at, at a specific moment in time, uh, no matter how much planning was involved. When you see people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, they're essentially uh, doing their best to run insurgent campaigns for uh, and the way parties are set up now. Uh, you know, if you win a presidential nomination, you're sort of the leader of that party, at least for a time. Yeah, I think so. I I always think of Trump as a he's a sort of quintessential Jacksonian era president. He's uh, a general. He's super, you know, general in the modern sense, the Wall Street era general. Um, he's charismatic, of course. He's a populist figure, and like the Whig Party presidents who. Each one who was elected, at least, was a general, very you know, elected on his popularity rather than his attachments to party or ideology. Trump has no attachments to party or ideology. Uh, nobody in the Republican Party appreciates his his uh, impact on the race. I think, at least, not not people in Congress, people you know, in the state parties. Uh, voters certainly do, but that's the the populist insurgency element here. Uh, he doesn't have any attachment to the parties, um, and I think the reason we're seeing uh, a a rise like Trump's right now is that. Uh, there tend to be the, the highest turnout elections and the most important reorganizing elections at the times when the two parties are least identifiable. You know, when they have the least differences between them, that's when there's a populist insurgency to 
take over and reshape them um, and uh, reclaim some of the distinctions that made voting for your party actually important and special. I think Republicans don't see that in their party today. So many of them are disenchanted and they feel disenfranchised uh, that a person with no attachments to the whole evil system, somebody like Trump, can come in and uh, uh, play on that disenfranchisement. Um, the United States in the Jacksonian era in particular became a Herrenvolk white man's democracy. I think that the Trump candidacy reflects a resurgence of that to some degree. Uh, it's, it's a cultural candidacy more than it is a political candidacy. Um, and uh, in some sense, that's, that's terrifying. <laughs> in, in some sense, it provides us with a map of what we need to do. Well, what, is, what, are, the, what are some things that you identify as uh, from your readings uh, that the establishment, for lack of a better term, ought to do? I think they, they well, <laughs> they might not be able to do anything by this point. And it, it might be the case that both parties destroy themselves in this election uh, and that we have a reorganization not only of the Republicans but the Democrats as well, that maybe we have the rise of permanent third or fourth parties uh, and a sort of constitutional crisis. Um, maybe with the Donald Trump presidency and, of course, no attachment to party, so a completely divided government that cannot function and that people, in fact, don't want to function anymore. Uh, so, you know, in some sense, they, they might be – it might be a foregone conclusion that our political parties will be totally reorganized and realigned somehow. They might still exist in name. But they will have to differentiate themselves. They will have to change uh, if they don't want to become extinct completely. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>